Hello and welcome to the Campaign Podcast. My name is Bo Jackson, I'm the media editor at Campaign and I'm joined today by Editor-in-Chief Gideon Spanier. Hi Gideon. Hi Bo. Later in the podcast we will be speaking about some of the biggest global media trends and the changing fortunes of tech giants and agency groups. Gideon will be joined by Joanna O'Connell from R3 Worldwide and Ian Jacob, whose portfolio of directorships includes chairing the board at UCOM. But before we get stuck into that, let's take a look at some of this week's top stories. Um, Gideon, what about MNC Saatchi's supergroup? Well, this is a story about how the the agency group in the UK has tried to simplify some of its operations by bringing some of its agencies together. And they include the ad agency, the World Services Group, which does a lot of their kind of government work, mm-hmm. and the Sports and Entertainment Agency. And Marcus Peffers is going to be the person who runs this UK group. They're calling it a super group. Yeah, with, I think it sounds a bit like a, a boy band or something. It could be, yeah. <laughs> and uh, 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 there are quite a lot of men who seem to be involved in this story, <laughs> just to say there are not so many uh, prominent women that I am aware of. Um, but the the there is one very senior woman because she's the global boss of MNC Saatchi, Zilla Bing Thorne. She came in as the executive chair in September and the strong impression is she's making a lot of changes. So the the reason that MNC Saatchi, I guess, needs to change is they've had really quite a checkered history in the last few years. They had some accounting irregularities before COVID, then the pandemic hit everybody. Last year, they had two failed takeover approaches. That's other companies trying to take them over. And then the CEO, Murray McLennan, left this year. And Zilla, who made her name at Future, the big media company, and transformed its fortunes. She's executive chair. She's looking for a permanent CEO globally, but she's not known as someone who sort of hangs around. So the UK supergroup, I I get the impression it's a little bit of window dressing, Mm -hmm. frankly, because some key parts of the business, like the PR agency, MNC Saatchi PR, the performance marketing agency, they're not part of this supergroup. But there's no question that MNC Saatchi wants to simplify what it's doing. As one other thing that's significant, within sport and entertainment, they're two of the biggest names on in that agency, um, Steve Martin, the global CEO, mm-hmm. and Jamie Wynn Morgan, the UK CEO, are leaving. And they've resigned. Um, we don't know what, why exactly, yeah. but uh, the it seems likely that you, know, you, you resign because you've got something in mind for the future. So that's interesting as well. And the sport and entertainment business coming into the, this UK group I think there's an element of probably trying to maintain the sort of stability there. Uh, They also do have a European CEO for sport and entertainment for the first time. He's called Carlo Naceda and he's Italian. And so I hope I tried my best to pronounce the last name right. And that sense that they're going to, he's going to be in charge of sport and entertainment across Europe and try and get the, different markets working closer together. There's a big theme about simplification and collaboration. It's not just about the UK and Europe, though. We've seen some other changes in Asia, which our colleagues at Campaign Asia have reported about MSC Saatchi. And I think it is a reasonable assumption that Zilla Bing Thorne is going to be 
changing it up in all of the regions. And one more thing, Bo, that I think is interesting, having covered MNC Saatchi for a long time, when the accounting irregularities emerged, they had 140 subsidiaries around the world. That's a lot. That's a lot. It sounds complex, right? <laughs> yeah, very and in complex. the UK, they had about 14. And simplifying the business makes a lot of sense. If you're a client, and let's say you're a global client or an international one, why would you want to be dealing with that? Even if it was like five different access points. across different um, countries. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be quite complex. So whilst I think the company hasn't talked about it as a global strategy, really, Mm -hmm. at the financial results in September, when she had just taken charge, Zilla Bingthorne did say, you know, if businesses aren't performing, we're going to close them down or sell them. So the, the message seems to be, simplify and if it's not working we're going to stop doing it uh, and there's a there, there's a sense that in asia pacific at least they're retreating a little bit they're do, doing a bit less okay interesting so i mean one of the things you mentioned there about mnc is obviously the departures and it seems um broadly across campaign that it's quite the season for people moves um we were just talking before i don't know if it's just because it's before Christmas and you're wanting to get um, everybody, all of that kind of news lined up. But we've got, um, this week we've also had a bit of a shake-up at Google, um, including some internal promotions. Um, In the new year, Meta's group director, uh, UK and Ireland, Sophie Neary, will be joining as Google's MD of Retail and FMCG, um, along with Condé Nast's Vanessa Kingari, who will be managing director of tech, media and telecoms. So um, that was that's been quite a a big story for us this week as well, especially uh, Vanessa Kingari's name coming up there. It was quite a surprise, I thought, for some people. Yeah. So I mean, the first thing for me, I would say, is Google's the biggest uh, media platform in the world for advertising. So anything Google does is interesting, mm-hmm. and the UK traditionally has been its biggest market after the US, and whether it still is. I don't think they say publicly, but it's one of the biggest. So it's really important. That's the first thing. And I think there's been a sense of uh, a bit of a changing of the guard there. So during the year, we know that there have been job cuts, uh, really for the first time ever at a significant scale globally. And some quite well-known names have moved on from Google. And within the UK, the MD who has been there all of this year, I think, for UK and Ireland, Debbie Weinstein has been making some changes, clearly a lot behind the scenes we don't know about. But I think this is the sign of what some of these changes are. So Vanessa Kingori is really best known because she was the business partner of Edward Edenfall at Vogue. And he was the editor-in-chief of British Vogue since 2017. And she came in pretty much at the same time as the publishing director. And if you uh, think about the transformational impact that Edward Enfield's had on their editorial. And it was, I think, extremely rare and probably unprecedented to have uh, a black publisher and a black editor-in-chief at the same time. And they were an incredible duo. Uh, Vanessa went on and became chief business officer for Condé Nast in Britain. Uh, But uh, I happened to see them both last week because it was the British Society of Magazine Editors Awards. And she was there to support Edward, who won uh, two awards, Editor-in-Chief of the Year and the Mark Boxer Award 
for uh, industry, uh, you know, biggest sort of a lifetime achievement award. And that's what it is, even though it's not called that. And there's a changing of the guard there at Condé Nast because you've got Edward Enfield saying he's stepping down and then you've got Vanessa Kingori also leaving. So two big media companies, Google and Condé Nast, changing the guard. And I think some of this is natural. Times of change. But uh, I mean, I should ask you, Bo, you know, you worked for HR magazine before coming to campaign is there ever a sort of pattern to HR type moves? And I mean, there's. Well, HR always say that the what the work that they do is quite cyclical, but I don't think that's potentially the case here. There was talk of a great shift, obviously post pandemic, when everybody's getting itchy feet and wanting to do something new, feeling like they were stuck inside for a while. But um, no, I, I think. I think there's other things going on here in terms of strategies and digital stuff and especially for Vogue, but also or Condé Nast especially um, and Google, of course, taking its kind of its ship in the direction of AI much more strongly, which I'd I'd seen. I think it, it makes sense that there might be a lot of shakeup. There's just been a lot of turbulence, even with Twitter changing all of the, the things going on there and the impacts that could be having digitally and just about in people's consciousness, you know? Yeah, well, I definitely think if I were to sort of think of the last three or four years and all of that disruption with the pandemic, I don't know if I would describe 2023 as, a, as the first normal year. I'm never quite sure no. what normal is anymore. <laughs> no, it doesn't seem that way, does it? But, but now I do feel like the, the sort of probably the business impact of the pandemic has sort of washed out now yeah. can i use that term washed yeah. out yeah uh people are still not coming to the office five days a week but that's a different story and mm-hmm. uh, so i should also mention one other big people move which has just happened which is chaka sabani who is the uk and global chief creative officer at leah Burnett. she's going to the opposition she's going very to ddb news. very exciting news that's yeah. just broken yeah, so she's going to be president and chief creative officer international for DDB Worldwide. Uh, that's the network which includes Adam and Eve DDB. So, yes, maybe everyone just wants their news out before the kind of Christmas break. Yeah, well, I won't hold my breath too much, I hope, for uh, for uh, being called up on Christmas Eve about something happening. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's hope not. I, I think Christmas Eve this year is a Sunday, but it wouldn't put it, I wouldn't put it yeah. past someone to try and get out some bad or awkward news the sort of the week before Christmas it's when most people have already sort of checked out it would be kind of yeah. a typical PR type move um it's also party season let's it's worth mentioning I think um uh, not only are people moving around we we've been having quite a lot of events this year I think personal highlight from the past few weeks was ITV Palooza which I went to um some great announcements there including uh, their move ITV's move to go to um create as a, an internal studio for creating ad funded uh content including champions which is a new um behind the scenes of horse racing which I think is going to be quite fun actually I saw a trailer for that um, but where where have you been this week as well, Gideon? I know you've been out. Well, uh, funny enough, I couldn't make the ITV Palooza because it was the same night as the BSME Awards. Mm-hmm. So I w- wish I could have gone. And I should ask you, uh, uh, before I tell you what I've been up to, 
uh, as a newcomer to covering the media scene, I know the Palooza was at the Theatre Royal Drury Lane and it's quite uh, glamorous and so on. And and how is it from a sort of star spotting Yeah, so I was was fully expecting to go and not know many people because I don't watch... um, Love Island or I haven't I haven't watched Big Brother and things like that but I was fully starstruck because I saw Jane McDonald there um, and ended up having to go up to her having a chat and I can say that she is probably the loveliest person <laughs> I've ever met and definitely exceeded my expectations especially about celebrities you know they say don't meet your heroes because they always let you down but Jane far exceeded it we had a little cheers with our Prosecco it was lovely Good. Well, I do think there's that thing where we uh, talk a lot about how do TV adverts still have that impact? The people watch less traditional TV, but there's something about telly generally where it's it's the thing which is in our lives. It's in our living rooms or our bedrooms. It's it's like you have an emotional connection to it and then see people in real life. It's 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 connecting. It's very connecting. Like the thing about Jane is that because she's from near where I'm from. So like I watch her cruise shows or her, her, her travel shows and it's like I'm home and it just reminds me of that. And I think there's always that nice comforting thing about TV, like you have it on in the background just for company as well, you know. So um, I, it, it makes sense TV-wise, but um, yeah. Well, I, I was at the Campaign and Performance Marketing World Power of AI Summit this week. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine talking about artificial intelligence, everyone's very excited about it. And we had some great brands in the room sharing both their experiences and sort of their predictions, if you like. And the truth is, is we all know people aren't using AI that much yet, but we had HSBC, Coca-Cola, Lipton Tea, and Kraft Heinz. It was really, really interesting for one major reason. The thing I took away from it all was writing the prompt to ask for the AI to create something for you, to generate something for you, is becoming a really important part of actually everyone's business. Yeah, but it's it's going to be an art. And and I spoke to Ben Middleton, who's from Creature London and in the creative department, and he was saying that this is something that for their young creatives, but really for everyone, knowing how to write for a prompt, write prompts, uh, there was also a legal section which, during the summit where we were talking about the risks of, you know, you mustn't write something in that prompt that might be uh, potentially at risk, making you at risk of copyright yeah. breach. Or it's sharing your information, like yeah. private confidential information from companies as well. It's a concern, isn't it? Yeah. So it was a, it was a, it was a good learning experience because the the AI story of 2023 has been hype and then some kind of general confusion. And actually there haven't been that many examples of it being really used and there still aren't going to be, it's going to take time, but as enjoyable to hear, because I think lots of people just are very interested to hear what other companies are doing. Uh, I had a nice time and it was nice to be with our colleagues from Performance Marketing World. Wonderful. It sounds great. So, I mean, as AI is a massive trend, I think now would be a good time. Let's move on to our chat with our guests about more of the big trends in media at the moment. Hi, I'm Gideon Spanier, the UK Editor-in-Chief of Campaign, and I'm excited to be doing a session here about trends in media. And I'm joined by two 
extremely well-informed guest, Joanna O'Connell, who's EVP Innovation at R3 Worldwide, which is a pitch consultancy and marketing consultancy, and Ian Jacob, who has a portfolio of directorships, Ian, but uh, they include the chair of UCOM and Cinema First, but various other ad tech and content and healthcare businesses, and also, very relevantly, former EMEA CEO of Publicist Media. So, Joanna and Ian, welcome. Hi, hi. Hi. So, I want to start by just saying, for a lot of people who are in the advertising business, media's been the engine of a lot of growth, really, for the, a decade or more. And we've seen in the latest Q3 results from some of the agency groups a continuing trend, which is creative or integrated creative under pressure. I think publicist refers to some of this as classic advertising, or you might say legacy, and media growing pretty strongly. Although, again, within the different holding companies, we've seen a, a kind of quite a lot of variation between publicists where it's been growing quite strong, high single digit, IPG where it's been growing, they haven't put a number on it, but clearly faster than creative, and then WPP where there's been actually a bit of a slowdown on both sides, creative and media. So it's interesting to know what might be driving all of this. And we know, particularly in 2022, a lot of the tech platforms had a big slowdown and some of the disruptor businesses. So I'm going to start with Joanna. What's your take on the media side of the advertising industry? Well, so much opportunity, so much innovation, so much change. I mean, the way that consumers are behaving is changing so dramatically and so rapidly that it creates enormous opportunity, I think, for agencies to help clients navigate that complexity. Because like, let's make no mistake, it's enormously complex. You know, when you are trying to navigate environments ranging from linear TV to social platforms to new new forms of commerce... Uh, to uh, artificially intelligent chatbots. I mean, it's an incredibly complicated world. And so complexity, I think, creates opportunity for agencies. Ian, you used to run a big agency. And so, yes, complexity does. Is it the friend of agencies? Well, there's always money in complexity, isn't there? Um, that's, that's for sure. Look, I think, I think Joanna's right. The media divisions of the holding companies have been through their own transformation. Um, and it started many years ago. Um, you know, probably more than 10 years ago when they really started to build in their capabilities around technology and data and automation. Um, and that's really the model they've been pushing hard down for some time, obviously with the help of or aligned with the big platforms and the other ad tech companies and the other ad tech firms that they use. So that transformation has meant that clients have been asking for more to, more information more insight into how to manage the complexity and the consumer complexity that Joanna talks about. Um, and it's given them opportunity to uh, expand their importance, really, uh, in, the, in the value chain, which has led to their growth and continues to do so because there's still much work to be done. So I want to get to the clients in a moment. But Ian, when we're talking about the agencies, there's been a lot of divergence in performance, which I've already mentioned. And I wondered, even though it's been quite a while since you left Publicis before the pandemic. Give us a sense of why you think there's been this difference in performance between the holding companies in media. Um, I think it's become, I mean, that's a complex question, obviously, and there's, I don't want to be too trite, um, but there are some, some uh, major trends that have been impacting the success or otherwise of different media operations. 
And um, publicists, a while back, as you'll remember, they bought Epsilon back in July 2019, I think it was. Um, and there was a great deal of skepticism around that they're buying Epsilon from the markets and from all sorts of uh, quarters. Um, but in reality, they appear to have been able to integrate that into their media systems and their media approach and bring new services and products to the marketplace. And what's interesting now, if you look at um, the latest Q3 uh, results from Publicis, uh, two-thirds of their revenue is either from media, data, or tech. And obviously, there's a connection between between those things. I think they've managed to productize, if, you, if I can use that word, uh, Epsilon um, in, uh, with combining that with media uh, to make it more valuable to clients. Some of the other holding companies have been less uh, less aggressive, should we say, in their growth in, in acquiring technology or acquiring data capability. And I think that's starting to show as the markets have softened a bit recently, that's starting to show in the results that we see. Joanna, you're, you, at R3, you deal with a lot of clients, so you know what their behavior is like. Where do you see the, the sort of role of media and data? And is that, if you like, a sweet spot? So not not to sort of grossly oversimplify a complicated topic, but everyone knows that data is fuel and maybe even more um, specifically owned data, first party data is is more sustainable fuel. <laughs> so uh, in other words, in a world where privacy concerns are um, heightened and that's appropriate because we've not always done a great job, certainly in the United States with managing consumer data, and we've certainly not done a good job with the consumer experience in advertising. So finding ways to get closer to consumers is almost a global obsession at the moment in the advertising world. Um, so that could be through more direct relationships through holding company-owned um, assets. It could be through media partnerships that either the agencies or the brands themselves are going out and sourcing so they can get closer to those platforms, consumers. Uh, it could be brands themselves investing in kind of different kinds of data, data collection efforts. All of those things form data strategy. And I would say probably every brand uh, has areas to improve there. Um, unless you're somebody like Amazon, you know, everybody has room to improve when it comes to being more uh, data driven. So that's a big, that's just a big one. And then the technology that supports it, of course, is a big part of the story as well, because Typically, the way that technology decisions are made can be quite ad hoc. It can be quite siloed. And so you, especially if you're an older business, you're going to have a lot of legacy tech that might not work very effectively, might not be very well connected. So really just finding ways to upgrade and rationalize technology, I think, is also kind of an enterprise-wide effort that you see brands going through. And then content, you know, again, these words are they're sort of buzzy um, and can sound kind of hollow, but truly like being a real content engine in, in, in an era of fragmentation and banner blindness and, uh, you know, fears of lack of authenticity, um, it becomes incredibly important that brands are very savvy as uh, content creators and certainly agencies should be helping there. I think are, but really should be. Now, before we go any further, I think it's important to pick up on the fact that a lot of people listening to this may come from what you might describe as the more creative side of the industry. And they're thinking about, well, how does this actually lead to better creative? And I guess the risk or the danger is that the whole industry becomes obsessed by technology and the pipes. Uh, so I'm going to go to you first, Ian. 
I mean, this is relevant because a lot of the creative agencies are struggling to grow anyway. So this is my question is how is technology being and data for that matter being connected to creativity? And is it? Well, that's a very good question, Gideon, because I mentioned earlier the transformation in, in media and what's been happening over the last 10 years. But in reality, where we find ourselves, and again, talking broadly, but where we find ourselves in media today is that optimization, improvement of what you're doing has some relatively marginal returns. I mean, they're important because it's on a large sum of money generally, but they're relatively marginal compared to the earlier days uh, of media. Whereas the real, uh, if, you, if you like, the next frontier is to apply some of the learnings that have been taken from the media operations and how they have navigated technology and, and data and start applying those to creativity. And I say creativity rather than just content because content has been, particularly to performance marketers, has been data-driven for some time now. And there are plenty of machines that exist that can change particularly static content on the fly and optimize it in the way that, uh, in the way that you optimize a media plan. In reality, uh, data and uh, um, technology is going to revolutionize the approach to creativity more broadly. Uh, and when you look at the holding companies, the, the creative divisions are the ones that are really, if you will, being a laggard and holding back the overall performance of, of, of the business. So I think this opportunity, if you get it right, and that's a big if, but if you get it right, it will be enormously beneficial uh, for, the, for the holding companies. Ultimately, where it's headed, and again, I'll, like Joanna, I want to avoid using the buzzwords, but just walk forward 10 years and imagine what it would be like if you had a unified data platform and the technology that lives off, off the platform that could influence creative and media taking one single source of truth about the customer. And I think that's potentially where the holding companies could head, but potentially, because some of them have been more into buying technology and owning technology and data, and others have been renting technology and data. Joanna? Yes, everything Ian said. I mean, I think the big if is is fair because um, the dream sounds beautiful, the unified platform, the, I mean, this is something I've been wanting for years, right? Like unified decisioning that is, you know, wash in data that enables really atomic level decisioning and it touches every touch point. I think we all say that we want that, but there are a lot of, I think there are a lot of steps that need to happen um, for that to become true. I think to Ian's point, are agencies really sort of truly able to make some of those really systemic structural changes that would be necessary for those things truly to be connected for media and creative to be connected because i feel like we've been talking about this for an awful long time and we still have such a long way to go i think brands want that and by the way this is not to say that brands aren't also part of the challenge here because their own sort of structural legacies can get in the way um but i'm, I'm you know I'm, I'm sort of waiting and hopeful for us to get to a place where we can say oh, no, it's more common to see media and creative singing so that creativity in all of its forms is expressed as more unified experiences. Um, that's just, I think that's still not the norm. Does either of you see uh, or want to name any brands that are, you think are doing it well or at least uh, progressive? 
I think a brand that's working, there are some brands that are, I think, really working on it. I mean, if you look at a company like Nike, they're kind of an interesting one because, you know, they responded in the pandemic to a real threat to their business model by evolving their business model, right? So they started going much more direct to consumer as an enterprise-wide decision that I think enabled them to be more data-rich, to have more insight, to have more direct uh, connections with customers, but they are fundamentally a very creative company. Um, now they're just, I think, a much more data-driven creative company. Um, they're just an example for me. And just to add to that, I, th- I think that the it's enormously challenging to go through the sort of the the long-term view that I put down there. Um, and in reality creativity and content needs to go through a significant revolution just to be capable on its own. Forget the unified platform for a minute, just to be capable of going through some of the steps I've talked about. Uh, It is enormously challenging to use uh, data and technology to create really powerful video work on the fly. That's much harder to do. Uh, And to understand where the human intervention is that allows you to bring some real creativity, i.e. a leap of thought, uh, into, into the whole process. The, the, the organizations, I think, just to ask, answer your question, Gideon, in broader terms, the organizations that are today best at this tend to be the direct-to-consumer and performance-based organizations, but they really are, on, I would say, on the very early steps themselves of getting this, getting this right. It's a really interesting picture where a lot of companies, whether they are advertisers themselves or agencies, need to boost their skills. Ian, you have written a piece for us where you're talking about the role of M&A. We've just heard also about Omnicom buying a digital commerce business, Flywheel, which is their biggest acquisition ever, around $900 million. So that's an interesting question to me. Is M&A going to actually be a big driver of change if companies aren't ready? Well, I don't want to be too contentious, but it's by no means sure that the holding companies will get to the place I've just described, by the way, uh, because it is really difficult to create a service business that then becomes a technology and product business. That's like hard. That very rarely happens. You either tend to be a tech business or a service business because the models are so different and the way you finance development is, is just so fundamentally different. As I mentioned earlier, publishers went through the fork in the road where if you well, they went into ownership versus some of the others that decided to go into to remain as renters and users of other people's technology and data. My personal view is, is that if you did it organically and you tried to, tried to develop tech and a data proposition on your own without M&A, you're going to be at best too slow. At worst, you'll never make it. So I think M&A absolutely has a, a place to play. Uh, M&A isn't the answer because you, then you've got to integrate which is the real challenge of M&A, as anybody that's done it knows, because um, that's where you can destroy value as much as make value. But I would say to, to make progress at the speed that the holding companies need to make progress, if they're not to be overtaken by other companies, some of whom we may not even have heard of yet, um, they will need to get involved in, it, in scaled M&A. Very interesting. And Ian, you've mentioned there about a sort of shift from services to products. And Joanna, you were in the past an analyst for Forrester, and you've got a good overview of the industry. And when you're thinking about what your clients want, is there a shift from from services to products? I'm talking about the marketing part of the organization inside clients. 
That's a great question. Maybe I'm going to dodge it for just a second because I think something Ian talked about was really important here, which is this notion of ownership, because there are also, aside from the challenges that come with integration, which is a totally real one, he's absolutely right. There's also just the reality that you're buying legacy technology and legacy assets and things can get uh, outdated pretty quickly um, in this very fast changing world. So, you know, there is also an argument to be made for renting in an era of <laughs> cloud infrastructure and data clean rooms and changing privacy regulations and just sort of rapidly uh, changing um realities of what the tech needs to do and how it needs to function. And they'll have to contend with that, you know, if they have tech that they own. So that's, you know, that's sort of the count, maybe the counterpoint. Um, services versus products. I Listen, I, I really just fund, as a personal view, fundamentally believe that clients always need expert help. They need strategic guidance. They need strategic partnership. They need partners that are looking at the broader landscape and looking around corners um, and so I just I, I struggle to imagine that that they will ever say I, you know, even as they're doing more things themselves, taking on more ownership of data, more ownership of technology, more ownership of content creation, sort of notion of having a really strategic partner or several strategic partners that are just there as thought leaders um, and providers of guidance. I just that has legs to me that has runway. Well, I said at the start of this conversation that it's you know it's exciting, but I actually think to to be a leader in this environment is really challenging because it feels like there's so much change upon us, whether the AI hype lives up to it or not. And um, so, my final question, which can be a short answer, is it a hard time to lead, Ian? You you advise a number of businesses. Is it a hard time? There's, there's so much change. It's always been hard to lead and there's always been change. I mean, everybody says it's more, you know, change is accelerating. Well, I've heard that for 30 odd years. I'm sure it is, uh, but, it, but it's always been tough. I think the issue is, is how able are you to take risk? And the reason why I mention M&A is often you, you're, you're offshoring risk because somebody, some entrepreneur has been through the risky process already to get to the point of being able to sell their company. And the question to my mind is, will the holding companies be able to onshore risk because it, it, for sure you're going to have some failure when developing tech. As Joanna says, you know, you never get the right answer first time. Uh, there's, there's so much change and so much development that it's about can the organizations have their leadership take risks. Joanna, last word to you. Is it a particularly tough time or is Ian right that it's always been tough? I think that Ian is right. I think that that's the human condition, <laughs> that we live through constant change and that, that it's always tough in the moment. Um, but, but, but certainly we're facing some really kind of big, almost existential kinds of questions that we maybe haven't before, like the massive, massive changes that are coming with AI. I mean, again, not to be sort of grandiose here or buzzwordy, but I don't think we even have any idea of the full implications, um, of AI on how we work, how we interact, how we create, 
um, you know, what it means to be, uh, to be a human, frankly. Um, so I'll, I'll leave it with that. Cause if I don't say AI at least once, I'll feel, I'll feel like, oh man, did I really, did I really, was I really on a podcast if I didn't say AI? Well, I think we've managed to avoid mentioning programmatic connected TV. We might have said retail media or alluded to it. And there are many other buzzwords we've managed to avoid, but thank you both very much, Joanna from R3 Worldwide and Ian from UCOM and Cinema First. Thanks to you both for joining. Thank you. Thank you. If you'd like to learn more about what we've been discussing today, please visit our website, campaignlive.co.uk. Details of our subscriptions are available at campaignlive.co.uk forward slash membership. If you enjoyed this episode of the Campaign Podcast, please follow us, like us, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. A big thank you to Haymarket studio manager Navpal and producer Till Owen and to our producer from Rethink Audio, Aidan Lyons. Thank you to you two for listening. I hope you'll join us next time. On behalf of the campaign team, goodbye.